Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from David Wheel, showrunner of new Amazon Prime Video science fiction thriller Citadel. Former Banerjee scripted chief Lars Blomgren on his new role at Michael Ellenberg's Media Res and Media One's Julian Board on the company's recent acquisition spree and why artificial intelligence could never have created Bluey. Citadel is a new science fiction action thriller from Marvel Cinematic Universe directing duo the Russo Brothers, created together with Amazon Studios' chief Jennifer Salke for sibling streamer Prime Video. A global event series with interconnected storylines, the US show starring Richard Madden, Priyanka Chopra Jonas and Stanley Tucci debuts today, with Indian, Italian and Mexican versions being developed in parallel. Showrunner David Wheel spoke to Michael Picard about how the project came about, the way the creative team is collaborating across borders, and the challenges of building a narrative universe from the ground up. It's an intense and exciting series. How has it been for you sort of just being able to relax now and and think about the journey that you've been on making it? It, It's been incredible. You know, it's been such a ride, such a long journey uh, all over the world uh, with such incredible talent, you know, on screen, you know, and, and behind camera. Um, so it's just a joy. Like we're, we're just ready, you know, for the world to see what we've done and, and to come on the ride with us now. Yeah, great. And, and I mean, you've been particularly busy, uh, you know, in the last few years, you've had Hunters, which is another prime video series and, and an Apple TV show invasion yes. and something else, I think. And so you've, yep. you've not had things, you know, you've not <laughs> been just lying around, uh, you know, chilling out. So how, how long has this been sort of in the background rumbling on before you could actually sort of get started? Yeah, what, what a great question. You know, I, I always try to do a number of things at once, uh, in part, you know, just because as a writer, you never know which project is going to go and you never know when it's going to go. So I always love to have, you know, as many creative irons in the fire as possible. Um, I, you know, I've been working on this for about a year and a half now. Um, and and it's just been a blast. You know, we finished Hunter Season 2 uh, production while this was sort of, you know, starting up. So there's often overlap sometimes between projects. Um, but such a different canvas to play in in such a different world. Uh, and that's what I love. I love each thing I do to try to flex a different creative muscle, um, to play in a different genre. Uh, and so Citadel is really, I think, one of the biggest um, and most exciting things I've been able to be a part of. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say that the projects you've done are, are very varied in genre and tone and, and style. I mean, is there... Is there anything that you can attach to them apart from yourself being involved or <laughs> do you just look for that variety of story? I think variety is key. And, and I think also there's sort of a through line uh, between the, the shows I create or co-create, uh, which is the notion of duality, uh, characters who have alter egos, um, characters who are harboring secrets, who are struggling you know, at war with themselves in some kind of way. Uh, those are the stories that intrigue me most. And though, you know, they're very varied in terms of genre and scope and scale, I think that is at least the sort of narrative through line uh, for each piece. And, and, you know, characters are certainly kind of at war with themselves in, in uh, Citadel, you know, namely because they, they can't quite remember their past, as, as people will see quite early in episode one. I mean, totally. how would you just, what's your kind of pitch for, for the series when you try and describe what it's about? Oh my God, it's so dense, right? So like the log line, it usually takes me like six lines just to tell you what it is, which I think is great. You know, I think that's sort of the, that's the kind of show I want to watch where someone's like, I can't specifically tell you what it is uh, or I'll ruin it, you know, or I'll, I'll give away some secrets. 
Um, but it's really about these two top spies uh, uh, from the greatest uh, spy organization that you've never heard of. And that is by design, that you've never heard of it, and that's called Citadel. Uh, Citadel is an organization that is loyal to no man and no nation, uh, loyal only to preserving you know, peace uh, for all people around the world. And so we, we meet these two incredible spies sort of at the height of their careers, but the day we meet them is the day that Citadel falls. And then we sort of plunge eight years later and we pick up with one of those spies, Mason Kane. He's living as this man, Kyle Conroy, for the past eight years in this small town in America with no memory uh, of his past. Um, until one night, a man named Bernard Orlick, played by Stanley Tucci, uh, arrives uh, and needs his help to save the world. Um, and so Mason, you know, meets once again uh, his sort of spy partner, Nadia Singh, uh, played by Priyanka Chopra Jonas. And together they set off in this incredible journey around the world, not only to save the world, uh, but also to sort of uncover the, the secrets of their own past and their own relationship. And it's certainly a, an explosive sort of opening and, um, you know, very much in the, in the sort of realm of, of James Bond, that kind of extended opening sequence that really uh, sets the scene, I guess, for, for what's to come. I mean, can you just talk a bit about that opening and, and how you wanted to sort of that structural device you wanted to use before the credits and then it's eight years later. So just how, how that kind of came about. Totally. You know, I, I had such I had such fun creating and writing that scene, um, in part because I wanted that opening scene to sort of be a microcosm of what Citadel as a whole would be, what you can expect, right? So in a, it's like a symphony of sorts where every instrument is played, right? There's incredible seduction, you know, great production value and design. Um, you know, there, there's sort of the emotional storytelling between these two spies. We get to see the love affair, um, you know, at the heart of the piece. And then we get this delicious sort of action set piece that's unlike anything I think we, we often see on TV. Uh, so it sort of hits all those notes and plays all those different instruments. Um, and then the unexpected happens. And I think that for audiences, especially today, there is so much content to consume that you're really fighting for attention. You're fighting for eyeballs. And so um, it's always so vital, I think, in the first few minutes to always do the unexpected, to pull the rug out from under the audience so that they know that they're in good narrative hands, good creative hands, uh, and that they want to come along for this ride. Yeah, that's right. And it, it's certainly then a juxtaposition after the credits where, you know, we've been in this, you know, huge train sequence and, you know, bullets and things, fires just everywhere. It's great. And and then after the credits, we cut to, to sort of rural Oregon and, and it's, a, <laughs> it's a real tonal shift. And I wondered whether, you know, if you were making a feature film, you could keep that tempo probably going quite smoothly for 90 minutes, two hours. But yes. is the fact that this is a TV show, did that mean you had to um, sort of find some levity quite early on and, and sort of balance the show quite, you know, early on so, you know, you can install that rather than getting to episode five and thinking, crikey, we need to have a break here at some point. Totally, totally, totally. And, and you know, look, for a feature film, you know, two hours, you can have some uninterrupted sort of bullet train, right, so to speak. Uh, but in television, you know, you have so much more time with the characters that you want to mine their humanity. You want to see a world that is reflective of the world that we lived in, even if it's special in some kind of way. Uh, and so life, you know, to ap accurately and aptly portray it on screen isn't just, you know, the explosions, even for a spy. Um, but it's really about, and, and the beauty of doing this in a long-form series versus Bond or Bourne or Mission Impossible, where you have two and a half hours, here we have, you know, nearly five or six. So we get to go home with these spies. We get to see sort of 
the world of spycraft that we don't often get to see on screen. And the world is filled with both horror and humor, right? Our, our lives are filled with both these great you know, successes and also these, these failures as well. And I think really being able to um, you know, etch uh, these characters as being fully formed human beings and having not only all those dimensions within themselves, but all those experiences in their own life uh, was vital. So yeah, the humor is so, so key to this. Like you, you need as an audience that release and that mm -hmm. relief because I think also if you get too much of the action, it becomes less special, right? Balance, I think, is key uh, to really any sort of you know narrative uh, success. Mm -hmm. Definitely, and and just I mean, how would you then describe you know both Nadia and Mason as as individuals, but also that obviously they're this super spy team that we meet early on, and and they sort of slowly have to rediscover that partnership that they sort of lost in the intervening years. Um, when Citadel sort of fell. I mean, how would you just describe them and, and their individual journeys as they sort of have to come back together and discover who they are and and that relationship that we sort of was teased at the start? It, it, you know, it, it's so unique in that, you know, for Kyle Conroy, uh, you know, though he's Mason Kane, I think for so much of the show, he is Kyle. He's really searching for identity. He's really searching for self. Uh, whereas Nadia Singh is almost um, cloaking her true self, right? There are secrets within her that she's keeping at bay, that she's keeping from Mason. And so they have very disparate journeys, even though they're heading you know, and racing toward the same destination. And I think that just creates great conflict. You can tell that there's a beautiful sort of heartbeat of romance and, and attraction between these two people. And what makes it so dramatically ironic is that Mason Kane is now Kyle Conroy and Kyle Conroy is married, right? So there's this very bizarre love triangle uh, at the center of this piece where there is a marriage that's intact and yet also uh, clearly Mason Kane had been in love with this other woman, Nadia Singh. And it's how do they, you know, um, how do they navigate that, right? H how does one, you know, what would one prize more, a past love or a present love, you know? And he, he has no recollection of the past, you know, romance but he's married in the present. So all kinds of very you know, interesting moral questions, I think, at, at play. Um, mm -hmm. But clearly there's more than meets the eye to this central relationship between Mason and Nadia. And we discover that, I guess, that how they first met in, in a flashback. Uh, and, and do we see lots of flashbacks then to their time together? And does that help sort of uh, to use that kind of flashback device to uh, explain perhaps some past moments that they kind of are remembering as the story goes forward? We, we definitely do. We definitely do. So audiences, I think, will, will be able to watch those flashbacks and, and unearth more about these characters. Um, versus just us telling, you know, what happened in the past, but really being able to see it uh, is so key, especially in a series that's about secrets and lies, right? So uh, for the audience to be presented the uh, objective truth and then to see how both Mason or Nadia have uh, perceived that truth and have carried that truth with them or cloaking that truth uh, is key. But yeah, you really get to see this beautiful love story play out uh, in the past. And so you mentioned you've sort of been working on this for sort of 18 months or so. I mean, how did you, you join the project? Was it the, the Russo brothers, Anthony and Joe, sort of give you a call and say, hey, we've got a project we'd like to sort of talk to you about? What was that sort of entry point for you into Citadel? Yeah, you know, my, my entry point was was through Jen Salky and, and Vernon Sanders. Um, uh, you know, I, I've done two other series with Amazon. I have a deal there. Uh, they've been my creative family for, for many years now. Um, and so they were really the first to talk to me about Citadel. And then I had the great fortune of meeting Joe and Anthony uh, and the entire Agbo and Russo team 
Um, and man, I, I, I feel so lucky. It's a gift uh, to work uh, certainly with, with you know, Amazon and Prime Video uh, and, and with the Russos. Um, so that was really my entry point. And then we just started this incredible collaboration and it's sort of like as if we've known each other and have been working together uh, for, for many, many more years than just the past 18 months. And, and as you came onto the show then, what were the, those nuggets of story or character that sort of were already in motion that you could then sit down and, and sort of take into the writer's room and, and then that was your starting point to take the story on? Yeah, you know, it, it, um, it, it was a, basically Jen Salki had this idea, right, to create this global uh, tapestry of stories. So the first being this England, English language series uh, but then she wanted to have a series in other languages, but all sort of part of the same storytelling universe. So she brought that concept and that idea to Joe and Anthony, and together they really concluded that the spy genre and a spy story felt so organic to being able to pull that off, right? So Citadel is the story about a global spy agency called Citadel. The US series follows the US agents, uh, the Italian series, the Indian series may follow agents uh, within Citadel from around the world. Um, and so that's really was the conceit. Um, and, and you know, when I came on, it was really about honing these characters uh, and, and ensuring that it was always character first and character forward. Um, you know, I think great television is complex characters and a story that can be followed, you know, um, and that isn't too dense, that isn't too complex. Um, or sort of bogged down in MacGuffins or minutia. So uh, together we really built what Citadel is, but really we just fell in love with these characters of Nadia and Mason and Dahlia and, and Orlick um, and the whole, you know, the whole group. Um, but really just always tried to have our North Star be this relationship between Mason and Nadia at the center of the piece. I guess it's no surprise perhaps that Amazon Studios are sort of looking at this already at the start as a, as a global kind of franchise. I mean, is that, that sounds like a lot of pressure for you to kick off the series and, and sort of reverse engineer almost a, a global franchise, whereas perhaps normally you would start with the US and say, okay, well, where can we take this overseas perhaps? You know, how did you find that balance then of, of creating a US series that, that works, but also is already sowing those seeds for Indian and, and Italian versions, as you mentioned? It's such a great question. Um, you know, because you're right, like normally I think in the life of a franchise or the success of a franchise, you begin with one, right? And then the audience tells you that it is a franchise, right? With yeah. this, you know, what's so vital to the DNA of the piece is that it is a global storytelling adventure, right? And and what I mean by that is, you know, while we were creating the US series, uh, an incredible Italian team was creating the Italian series, a brilliant Indian team was creating the Indian series. And so we were all working in tandem, though at sort of different, you know, stages um, in the process for each of us. Uh, but I, I think great challenges are really just great opportunities. You know, never never has, has someone done something like this before. Um, oftentimes, you know, a series is based on, or a franchise is based on IP that's originated by a single creator. In this case, we have, you know, dozens of creators from around the world, filmmakers, writers, actors, um, and we're building this IP, this new mythology together. So like every other week, we have a global writer's room where the writers from all around the world and I and, and my writing team, we all get together, we break story, we talk about the histories of these characters, potential future ideas for them. Uh, and so it's unlike anything I've done before. Um, 
And also like as a creator, as a showrunner, it's such a lonely job. You never get to work with other creators or showrunners. So getting this chance to work with global partners, global showrunners and creators, it's incredible. It's really just something special. Yeah, no, that, that, that does sound pretty special. And I mean, how do, how do you ensure then that Citadel has one voice, one creative direction, or is it, are you given that freedom to take your own series in, in a, in its own way, but I guess ultimately still trying to adhere to some sort of, uni, you know, overarching, uh, you know, style or voice. Yes. It, it's both, right. It's, it's both <laughs> things in the sense that, uh, the, the Russos and Agbo and I, we're such fans of, of so many international <clears throat> creators and, and filmmakers. So part of the fun is partnering with folks like Catalea in, in Italy, who've done Gamora, DK and Raj in India, um, you know, who have created some of the most successful series um, there and really saying, run with it, you know, create the series that excites you. Each of these series may have slightly different tones. You know, they, they come from different creators after all. Um, but for myself, I, I serve as this sort of gatekeeper of the Citadel mythology to ensure that um, even that we celebrate the differences, but also have enough similarities and enough connected tissue such that it feels like one cohesive cinematic universe. Not mm -hmm. unlike, I would say, Marvel, um, yeah. you know, which really you watch different Marvel series uh, and they feel they can feel very different in tone, but they're all part of the same uh, universe. Yeah. And, and I mean, the Russos certainly know what they're talking about when it comes to universes having done a lot of Marvel movies. I mean, what, yes. what did they sort of say to you about the challenges of, of a, a franchisation, perhaps, or a, a global story that like this, that, you know, we're seeing a lot more spin-offs now and, and you know, there's the Arrowverse on the CW that's been going for a, lot, a few years. And yeah. in Europe, we've, we've got a few shows that are kind of spinning off uh, in different places. I mean, what lessons are there, would you say, about creating a franchise such as this from the ground up rather than, as we discussed, naturally just doing the next one and then the next one? Totally. You know, I, I think it's a lot about being very open to collaboration, you know, being very open to the best idea wins, doesn't matter who it comes from, uh, and really learning from your partners, right? Like there is so much for me as an American writer uh, that I've learned from our Italian partners, our Indian partners, biases that, you know, we may have, that I may have in, in storytelling. Um, you know, we create an Italian character in a U.S. series and our Italian, uh, you know, partners may say, oh, always an American series is the Italian character doing this or saying that. Can we subvert that, right? Can we be more true and more authentic um, to the storytelling, you know, that we prize in, in Italy and so that's what's been so wonderful. I think it's really about surrounding yourself with an incredible team or series of teams uh, and being open, but it's just like brick by brick, right? I think if you come into this and say, oh my God, we're creating this huge franchise and there's so many moving parts and there's so much mythology, it feels so overwhelming. Um, but my sort of discipline as a writer is like, I start with a blank page and it's just like line by line by line, you begin to build something quite expansive and unique. So. That's what we've done with Citadel. Um, and, and I'm always up for a, an immense challenge as a writer. It's like, that's the thing that I run toward, the thing that scares me most. Uh, and Citadel was frightening because of its you know, great ambition. Uh, but that's what I love about it as well. And I guess just following on from that quickly, in terms yeah. of connecting those different stories, I mean, yeah. how have you had to uh, introduce perhaps elements of the other series in, in your mm -hmm. version? And, and perhaps if you look forward to... Um, you know, season two of Citadel US, how are you thinking about what's happening in the other series? Or can you just do a new story and and sort of 
you know, largely ignore the main events in those series, but obviously still keep some sort of thread. Is it? I mean, how do you balance? I guess it's the Marvel question again, isn't yeah. it? You know, they started with Iron Man, but then after three or four films, it all got very connected and, and things played on. And there was that fear that viewers would have to watch all of it to kind of understand what's going on. Is that something you have to consider now when you're going to move forward, hopefully with season two? It, it, it certainly is, you know, and, it, and it's such a balance because I think each uh, series and season of a series must stand on its own, must be rewarding mm -hmm. to an audience. And Look, by the way, you know, we hope that an audience watches every, uh, you know, series within the Citadel universe, but you don't need to, to be able to enjoy the story. There are great rewards, I think, for the fans who do, who watch the US series and the Italian and Indian series, um, but you don't need to. And so I always start with what is best for this, you know, our series, right? Um, but you have to be so open, like 70% is about like, what's great for this series, or you know, 80% and 20% could be about, uh, all right, where's the sort of flexibility? How do we have these characters collide? Um, but we had this incredible global summit uh, uh, some months ago where we got to sit down uh, at Culver uh, City, you know, at the Amazon Studios and speak with all the creators and really map out this sort of timeline and, and grand architecture of, of where things go, what uh, characters may collide with one another. So that was such a, a, a rewarding and, and meaningful experience because we gained so much from it. And we were able now, like if in building, you know, US season one, there were certain things that in the post process, we got to change or we were able to change to include certain characters or ideas or touchstones um, from some of these other series. No, it's a fan, fa you know, fascinating model, and uh, I really hope it pays off for you because it's uh, it's Thanks, really man. interesting to see where it could go. Um, and I guess once you you've pushed the global stuff aside and you can focus on your own show, I mean, can you just tell me a bit about yourself as a showrunner and and sort of leading the writers' room? What you know, how do you like to break down the story and and sort of do that work in the room and get the scripts sort of into shape? Yeah, you know, I I usually start the room uh, trying to have a, a lot. Uh, thought out, right? At least a destination or guideposts for here's where I think the big sort of turns and moves uh, may be for the season. Um, and then working with incredible writers to really fill, uh, fill out um, detail work, character work, twists and turns. We may blow something up, you know, something that I had thought, you know, would be great. And then we get in the room and we discuss it and we, you know, better it and best it. Um, but for me as a showrunner, you know, what's key for me is, is best idea wins, right? It doesn't matter whom it comes from, whether it comes from myself or the writers or even on set. It comes from the incredible actors or the, the director or, you know, the crew, a gaffer, like anybody who has an idea, you know, to make this better. It's so welcome, right? Like we, we work in collaboration uh, and I think every series is stronger um, because of, of that collaboration. But the writer's room is so key to that, you know, being able to exchange ideas, to debate, to discuss, uh, and also to organize a room with people um, from many different experiences, right? Different backgrounds, such that we can have authenticity in the storytelling. Uh, and I think that sort of parlays into the larger notion of Citadel, where oftentimes, you know, IP is uh, white, male, Western led. Um, but what is so unique with Citadel is that there's not one singular voice. We're building IP, uh, you know, myself and the Russos with our Indian, you know, creative team, with the Italian creative team. We're all sort of working together uh, at the very same time to construct this grand IP. And I mean, just as a showrunner then as well, I mean, 
what are some of the the challenges or the issues that you had to think about while you were writing the series thinking about shooting and and then once you were in production where were those obstacles and so I mean it's a hugely expansive series in multiple locations with yeah. huge you know stunts and, and set pieces and and a very futuristic kind of looking design as well I mean what what were yeah. those just things that were top of your mind as a showrunner as you were working through the production process? Yeah, look, I always love to have freedom on the page. You know, I always love to cast as big of a canvas as possible. And then, you know, you run into challenges or limitations. It, it happens on every, it happens for Marvel, it happens for Star Wars, it happens on every production, right? And so yeah. in those challenges and in those limitations, I actually think the best ideas come about, right? So you sort of, you know, shoot for the stars. And then if we can't film in, you know, the Maldives, do we change something, you know, to fit a different locale or location or character beat or story? But I love those limitations, honestly. Like, I find the most um, creative solutions, the most unexpected twists and turns um, by having limitations. Now, look, this is a massive show. We have an incredible canvas. It's probably the biggest thing I've ever done. Uh, and having the support of uh, Agbo and the Russos and Prime Video, we're able to pull off things that, like, you know, I think many productions aren't. Uh, both because of the commitment that Amazon has made to the series and also because of the uh, incredible expertise and experience that the Russos have in building some of the biggest films and, and, and stories uh, that the world has ever seen. Yeah, I mean, I just, are there just finally, are, are there just a couple of examples of, of things that cause you to sort of stay up at night thinking about how are we going to do this or, <laughs> or things that you were looking back on, just really proud that you thought, wow, that we, we did that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the train sequence uh, from the first few minutes. Like I, I feel, um, it, was, it was probably one of the first things I wrote uh, when I came on board and, and uh, it is the first thing I wrote. Um, and I just love how it turned out. You know, it was a massive undertaking and there was a lot of conversation of how do we pull this off? Well, like what will it look like? And I'm just so proud, you know, working together with the incredible stunt team, the visual effect team, uh, Tom Siegel, the director, um, and, and of course, Richard and Priyanka in, in bringing that to life. The production design, um, it was just very magical. So, so that's one that I'm really proud of. But man, I stay up you know, every night uh, about everything, you know, always like, will that land? Will that read? Will that play? Um, it's a constant sort of, as a writer, as a creator, process of editing oneself and one's work, right? It's like, it's never done it's just that at a certain point it has to air right i think that's true for me yeah. for any show as a creator um so i'm always kept up at night by like but can we push it more can we push it more and and, and joe and anthony um think in that same way as well and i think it's why we we got along so well Long-serving Banerjee, head of scripted Lars Blomgren, stepped down recently to become head of international at Michael Ellenberg's LA-based Media Res, maker of series including Apple TV Plus dramas Pachinko and The Morning Show. In Cannes for MIP TV last week, he spoke to Michael Picard about his new role, getting back into production, and his view on the challenges facing premium drama as execs contemplate the end of TV's golden era. Lars, you've been uh, in the new job at Media Res for about four months or so now. I mean, just tell us a bit about your decision to, to leave Banerjee, where you were overseeing a number of their scripted companies around the world and, and sort of get back into the coalface of, of production. Well, I mean, like, I, I, for me, I really enjoyed working at Banerjee and, and it was amazing to meet all the different cultures in the world. But that's, in the end, it's about handling other people's passions and I wanted to get back to, I am a producer with 
a long track record of doing shows, so I just wanted to get back into producing. And when I did, we did scenes from marriage together, me and Michael. And when he asked me if I wanted to join him, it just felt so good. Mm-hmm. And now, and I'm really happy to be back doing it. It's the I am a producer, and I like to be in charge or part of big projects. <laughs> and then you said, yes, yeah, so you met Michael Ellenberg on, on Scenes of a Marriage, and, and what was it about the media res catalogue that you liked or, or Michael's international ambitions in terms of scaling up the company and, and bringing you on board to, to expand around the world? No, I think it's just that Michael is a brilliant producer. It was, it's, I mean, the, it's so different to be in the US, and he's really good with curation and handling scripts and understanding the creative side, but it's also brilliant when it comes to packaging which is a completely different sport than the one we do so yeah yeah so it was just a very good match and i you know and i can have access to ip and talent from other parts of the world so it's a good match yeah and so yeah so tell us a bit about your your brief then as head of international what kind of things are you looking for who are you going to be working with and and how are you sort of taking projects and packaging them together well i'm I'm, first of all i'm not I can't have like an endless slate, so I will, it will be fewer, more safer bets. And, and I'm not in a position to announce anything yet, but it's going to be, I mean, of course I'm Scandinavian, so some projects will come out of Scandinavia, but we also have a development now in Japan and in the UK for that matter. And, and so, but I will have to have a kind of opportunistic approach and, and go for a few number of, of of more or less safe bets. Mm-hmm. So that's the yeah, and, and we're, we're speaking in Cannes at MIP TV, and and one of the subjects of debate has been that focus on smaller development slates, not overstretching yourself in these times where you know budgets are shrinking and and, commis- uh, and broadcasters are, are commissioning less or or commissioning projects with smaller budgets. I mean, is that something you're seeing, and, and that's Absolutely. shaping your agenda? Absolutely, and that was actually a part of my my like final message to the Banerjee group that if you, I mean right now it's so challenging to get commissions and, and so if you have a brilliant project that you love but with any kind of headwind just park it for now and focus on the things that can get commissioned mm-hmm. it's, it's a big change now yeah um, and when you talk about things that can get commissioned is that um, is there a danger we're, we're sort of shrinking back into sort of safe procedural type scripted series perhaps and, and broadcasters are less willing to to take those risks those stylistic art house shows perhaps no, I don't think so because the, the I mean everything is the business is much more mature now and the, the commissioners are, are so much better mm-hmm. so they will still be able to identify the high quality project and like you, you heard Jane Featherstone last night I mean you always want to surprise your audience but you, you just have to stay away from if there's any kind of headwind, if there's a reason to say no, they will say no. Mm-hmm. So you just have to navigate that. Yeah, yeah. And, and what else are you, are you hearing here and, and you know seeing around the world in terms of the, the challenges or obstacles that you're sort of facing in the production sector at the moment? I think that, I mean, the, like we talked about, the first circle of streaming, that's over and it's a new world now. And I think my impression here is that everyone takes it incredibly seriously. And, and this is a... It's a big change, uh, and by producers, we're like water. We always find a way down the mountain, and so I think it's going to continue. And the other one is, of course, that it's the same for every. The, the, the problem is the same all over the world. Mm-hmm. But then, 
one thing that we also talked about that, that now when in this shift from future value to making money, the, the, the buyer is not going to buy things they don't need, so co-productions will come back. Mm-hmm. And that opens up the traditional model that we're used to. Yeah. You know, I think if you look at the Braun, for example, the bridge probably, I think we had six partners, six broadcasters involved from mm-hmm. the start. So, so, and so we're used to it. <laughs> so it's open up. And, and the second thing that is night that we need to get out of this silo like Zoom society and start meeting again. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting with all the, you could tell from all the producers that they really want to connect and talk and, and gossip. <laughs> I, I heard a few things but like, like, I'm really glad I know, mm-hmm. and I didn't because I, 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 it's just like people drop half a sentence and you make your puzzle and you realize that they're competing projects or whatever. And I think it's good. Yeah, yeah. So so much for uh, less travel and, and more Zoom meetings during the pandemic. That's yeah. all gone out the window, yeah. hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that. I don't know. Everyone's. I mean, I think that Zoom's here to stay, and it's really good. But I, I this. Um, I mean, even for me, uh, like working remotely, like, there's so many of the conversations at the coffee machine or you know at the gate at the airport, whatever. They're, they're so important. So I think the the, the big events gonna get bigger yeah. and more. But it's all we have. We have to meet each other. Again. Yeah, and, and you talked about the first cycle of streaming over being over is was that always going to come to this point at some point or have there been external factors you know people are talking about inflation cost of living uh, the ukraine crisis is ongoing obviously are those things that have um propelled this end of the cycle or was that are they kind of it would have happened anyway i think it would have happened anyway but i mean the of course covid and 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 the war it may be able speeding it up but it wasn't it was a it wasn't a sustainable situation, and mm-hmm. it, it needs to change. Yeah, I mean, how is that going to happen? Are, are agents suddenly going to demand less money for their for their actors and their writers? And I mean, how how are we going to bring the cost level down? Uh, I think that's the <laughs> that's the million dollar question. <laughs> no, but I think that at the same time, the if there's fewer bigger shows, that that, that needs to rest. And I mean, they. The, it's the, the temples that will drive subscriptions, so the big stars and the big names will mm-hmm. continue to get well paid. And I think that's that. But it's more, it's like this, like with the indie movies, it's like the mid-range ones. That, that that's the challenge. They're mm-hmm. not as big stars, so they're not. It's like, <laughs> and that's the. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. I think I think in in a way I think this is all for the better. But I'm glad that. Uh, I mean, if this is if the second circle, if, if the, a lot of the commissions, like straight from the hip, and also buying thing that was available, mm-hmm. but now curation is so much better and, and valuation is better. That's why I say park the park the project. Yeah. That, that it's difficult to sell right now. Yeah. We will be able to sell them later on if they're good enough, but not right now. Not right now, yeah. And and that question of of mid size or, or mid market series where. They're not prestige enough, perhaps, for for whatever reason, or they're that they but they cost too much to be a, a low budget show. I mean, how how does that affect your role as a producer finding the right projects, and, and how do you think that will then flow up to the commissioners when they're deciding what to choose, what to commission? I mean, it, and with my new hat on, it's not it's not really a problem because 
Media Res is, is in a way a small studio but with really big projects and that's the, and that will always be the, the, the profile of the company and we yeah. will always well package big shows with big names mm -hmm. yeah and, and packaging is as, as you say is, is such a big part of television now so when people are pitching to you or have an idea I mean how do you like to receive projects do I just send you an email with a my pitch for a new medical thriller or do you need to have Jennifer Anderson attached to the morning show already <laughs> no I think that we want to do the actual packaging okay that's it okay. I think that uh, and then then of course the you have to start somewhere. Where either you start with a with a director, discussion with the director or writer, or you start with a big IP. But but uh, but historically, this is Michael Ellenberg's best sport, and that's the, that's the knowledge I want to tap into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Does that mean you're you're now talent spotting as well, looking for for actors, but also obviously the new writers, the new directors to to bring we to projects. Yeah, we all do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 great. And I mean, we should just mention, you know, the bridge is is still being remade. It's still being watched, still being aired. Yeah. I mean, how do you look back on that time, you know, with Film Lance bringing that show to air? And and I don't imagine you could have foreseen the the global impacts that police crime drama could have had. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it, for my, of course, it had an effect on my own learning curve, and especially about working in different cultures and. Then, and for the bridge, especially because you have two cultures working together on the same project, so it's been an amazing ride, and mm -hmm. and I think it will continue. <laughs> there, there's still more versions to be done, and yeah, yeah. one more challenging than the other. I still want to do South and North Korea, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's um, no, it's been an amazing ride, mm -hmm. and also it, it gave me quite a few good lessons about formats in general, and and how, what actually works as a format, and. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, I think it's been amazing for me and an important part of my career. Yeah, no, definitely. What, what did that teach you perhaps about co-production as well and, and the importance of natural creativity behind a co-production in terms of, you know, a story about two different countries, but it's a quite a natural co-production. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important lesson is that you have to you have to embrace and respect the local culture. You can't have like an imperialistic view finding, say, I'm from the bigger country, we're doing it my way. You have to listen to both sides. And, mm -hmm. and that's why I've always wanted to have broadcasters from both territories attached when we start. And mm -hmm. that's the... But I mean, it, it's also been a pretty bumpy ride at times. So you learn more from your mistakes than from your success. I yeah, think, yeah. By, but I think uh, that's the and, and that's you know the older I get the more respect I get for for the culture. It's such a big yeah it, it's such a different like, you know that mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> it's just even between Sweden and Denmark that's, that's incredibly different cultures and mindsets. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and so what does the rest of the year look like for you in terms of building your your small slate your you know your um, you know, curated slate what are the things you want to look for and, and how you know where might we be this time next year perhaps so I'm spending my, my time is between Stockholm and LA mm -hmm. and uh, so I'm going back to well, first New York and then LA in in May and June and then and then I will just travel and, and uh, 
keep talking to agents, keep talking to publishers and talent, and, and build my continue to build my slate. Yeah, and what, what sort of team have you got behind you at Media Res? Who are you working with there on the international side, and and how's that shaping out? We're building. I'm, I'm still, and I want to continue to tap into. They have an amazing like the business affairs and mm-hmm. head of production and development people. So I would love to continue to tapping into and understanding their DNA mm-hmm. because that that's what built the success of the company but then of course we're, we will staff up in Europe with yeah. with, the, with all the functions but still at this point I think we're looking at having it the, trying to work together with LA as much as possible yeah I mean how, how would that manifest itself in terms of you find a project or something a person you want to work with and, and how does LA come into that question or are you working solely in Europe I guess and with you know overseeing by LA <laughs> I mean I think it would be a, a waste of talent not to use Michael for, for getting the best pitch in place or and or Christina or, or I mean Lindsay the guys that work there to, to be part of the pitch and to elevate it and make it as you know to get to that undeniable level and so I, I think they will I I can like I can source material and and and, and bring it to them. You know, then we build it together. Yeah, yeah. And then you mentioned the the media res DNA. I mean, how would you just sum that up for for people who want to come and speak to you? What a what? How would you you know describe that? <laughs> well, I think it's high high end shows for the global market. Mm-hmm. I would say that that's probably the easiest way. Like well created, lots of respect for the talent, and mm-hmm. always placing at the same side of the table, working together. French production and distribution group Media One recently acquired a majority stake in Netherlands-based Submarine, hot on the heels of buying the UK's Wild Seed Studios. Media One kids and family president Julien Bohr spoke to Nico Franks about these moves at Cartoon Next in Marseille last week, where he also discussed what Web3 means for the future of the animation industry and why artificial intelligence could never have created Bluey. In the recent weeks, there's been uh, some growth in, in the number of companies uh, within Media One Kids and Family. Uh, Wild Seed Studios in the UK and more recently Submarine, uh, which is in the Netherlands, but also has offices in the UK and LA. Tell me a bit about the, the strategy behind acquiring those companies. Yeah, we are super happy of welcoming both uh, Wild Seed uh, and uh, Submarine. The idea is really to build Media One Kids and Family as a, an independent production and distribution kits uh, company. We are already very strong in Europe. Uh, thanks to Method Animation, we are one of the first animation company in Europe. And by adding uh, new labels, new shop at Media One Kids and Family, we are ambitioning uh, to, to cover all the needs of the market and to become one of the global independent uh, kids studio. And what do those companies bring in terms of the portfolio? So those are already two uh, very creative companies. Uh, when we welcome labels and studio within Media One, really the main focus is to find the best talents possible in each genre. Uh, so in, in the case case of, um, of Wild Seed, uh, we were really, really interested in the capacity of Miles uh, Below and, and uh, Jesse Cleverly uh, to be very strong in live action, 
for twins and kids in the UK, uh, being, being very strong also into kids 8 to 12 uh, animation, which is slightly older than what we do at uh, Method Animation. So it's really complementary to, to a very good combination, a very good addition to what we do traditionally at Method Animation. Uh, they have very strong relation with all the UK uh, clients and partners and with all also the UK creative community, which would that be in terms of writers, showrunners, directors. So they are already opening us to, to new new people and, uh, and that's really key in the decision, decision of welcoming uh, Wild Seed into, into the family. And, and Jesse and Miles have always been incubating talents very well. Uh, through short films, uh, through uh, competition of animation, uh, what they did a few years ago in Canada. Um, so that, that daring incubation uh, policy that they have was also very positive for us. In the case of Submarine, it's also a great addition to what we do. Uh, as, as you know, Media One is, uh, is a general entertainment compa company. We do many, many things for grown-up. So uh, Submarine will work for both uh, the Drama International team, but also the Kids Animation team uh, to build both uh, a, a very good series lineup for grown-ups and very good uh, adult animation uh, lineup for young adults and adults, and also preschool and kids content in animation, which is what uh, Bruno, Felix, and, and Femke out of LA is doing very well with the shows that I'm sure you know that they have done for, for Amazon especially and for, for Netflix in, uh, in adult animation. And we're here in Marseille for Cartoon Next and uh, you gave a very interesting presentation about how you kind of see the future of kids TV evolving, taking it from what, you know, the previous years of linear now more on demand and then the next phase um, you know, you use Web3, um, the term Web3. You were talking a lot about the way that fans are going to be able to get more involved with uh, the shows that they enjoy. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah, we see really the, the Web3 phases in which we enter as a very uh, positive step for, for animation. Uh, animation has everything really to, to be a, a major genre in entertaining, in entertainment. Uh, in, in, in the future and, and right now, animation used to be stuck in Saturday morning blocks and uh, on traditional TV channels, but now it's everywhere on social networks, in gaming, it's in primetime TV and in big streaming series. So animation is everywhere and it's, it's very positive. And for kids and young demos, it is uh, in the process of reinventing itself uh, thanks to the, the social network tools that authorize fans to engage better with their characters, which allows fans and kids to, um, to be in much more immersive environment. So I really think it's something that we've been talking a lot for years. Uh, when will transmedia really happen? When will we provide to kids and families a, a truly immersive experience, which will revolve on the different media and the different um, uh, experiences possible on, on many different devices. It is, it is happening right now. And kids, the kids industry, back to Disney, who invented that principle of franchises and of transmedia in a way, uh, was 
in its DNA, in the DNA of the kids industry, you really have that, that transmedia capacity and technical new tools and, and the new ways fans engage with content thanks to those technical new tools really will allow us to go further in transmedia experiences. And this is super exciting. We are finding um, more new IPs coming from digital that we bring to traditional TV and to streamers. And we think we are only at the beginning of the impact of the creator economy uh, on the kids' business. And uh, it's difficult to see uh, precisely how it will uh, be concretely in the next years. But we feel uh, that it will be better for creativity. It will allow us to go faster into production and, and probably uh, to be more relevant uh, to kids and, and families' expectations um, via new, new content. And you spoke a bit about using AI, kind of experimenting with AI. And I, I think the project was it Julian and Jenny that you mentioned. So tell me a bit about that and, and how those experiments have gone. We, we, we are big believers in the fact that technology is, is going to, to really, really revolutionize the way animation is done. If you look at the way animation has been done in 2D and in CGI since the 20s, since the big animated movies started and, and even before with the first cartoons, uh, the, the production and process of animation has been uh, the same in a way, e even if things have evolved. Uh, the fundamentals of it are the same and with IA and um, with all the new tools that are available for animators and producers uh, we believe the pipelines that will be used by production companies in uh, one, two, three years are going to be completely different and will allow to, to, to be better in the creative phases and to go faster in the non-so-creative phases. So we have big expectations uh, we believe we have to find a good balance between what IA and, um, and creative brings to the table and uh, we will have to use all those tools uh, to, to focus more the energy on the humane added value in the production process. And how about in terms of scripts? Because that's an area where some kids TV producers have been quite outspoken about them not wanting that to become normalized. Once again, it's, it's all about managing new tools, new tools being part uh, of the process, but not being the only part of the process. And uh, I would rather read a good script, which will have been uh, produced with the help of IA, but then finalized by a human being, than reading a very bad script done by a lazy writer. And you mentioned, yes, but Bluey is an example of the opposite of that, of yeah. a, a, a very you know, well-written show that appeals to you know, adults of, of kids, you know, parents of kids, just as much as the kids. Um, but then we're also seeing in that preschool there are shows that are very quick to produce. So in terms of how you see that evolving, you know, how do you ensure that there are more shows like Bluey produced that have been big hits on streaming rather than the other kinds of shows we're seeing on streaming um, for that preschool audience which tend you know don't have as much attention and care uh, put into them as Bluey does. I, I think we will probably be see both but in a way in the industry you have always had very different 
level of quality of content and it's good and it's good that are available very different kind of content some content will be very easy to produce easy to watch maybe maybe completely automatized um, managed by IA but others will be more humane led and, and will bring something new to the table I think to you to the example of Bluey uh, intelli artificial intelligence will never have produced a Bluey because uh, IA revolves around existing material so it couldn't have thought or shaped a script a la Bluey because it was not existing before uh, and that I think is is super interesting and that will will be essential in any new creative show and, and I think it will force writers, directors, producers to be more innovative, new and relevant uh, because the easiest thing will be done by machines. And often at these events the talk would be about traditional linear TV channels closing down and it being an inevitability but we're seeing the kind of rebound of linear TV in a lot of ways um, especially now that streaming services are quite unpredictable in terms of their commissioning um, and Sky Kids is an example of that so do you feel like the that question around linear channels closing is not necessarily an inevitability and we'll see more linear channels survive I have always been a big believer in, uh, in the fact that uh, digital is not a word of or, it's a word of and, uh, and I think it's good and, and the, the market will be based around both uh, linear proposals and non-linear proposals. And I, I was super interested and happy to see uh, Sky Initiative in the UK, which by, by combining SkyKid with its on-demand service, is proposing a, a real added value to its subscribers via real uh, curation of kids' content. Um, and I, in a way, I think Linear is back uh, because you have never had so many fast channels dedicated to, to kids in the US and in Europe. And uh, fast, free, ad-supported uh, TV uh, is nothing but the reinvention of Linear and pay TV. And I believe in the future you will see both very strong streaming uh, services, which uh, will always have a big part of kids and animation content, but also fast and linear uh, channels, uh, because kids have the rights to, to be lazy. Uh, kids need uh, people to help them uh, to make choices, people, and kids need that to happen in a very fragmented environment where they can find things that are not suitable for them. So curation, linear are critical for the industry and uh, both are going to, to exist in, in the future. Julian Bohr speaking with Nico Franks. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Weddale. Thanks for listening.